0: Welcome to The Drabblecast, episode 215. The Drabblecast is a weekly audio fiction magazine that brings strange stories by strange authors to strange listeners, such as yourself. I'm your host, Norm Sherman. Lovecraft Month continues here on the show, but first, let's check in with Chief Drabblecast cryptozoologist Connor Chodesworth in part four of our ongoing nature documentary miniseries, In Search of the Brain-Eating Nandi Bear. In Search of the Brain-Eating Nandi Bear with Connor Chodesworth. Kenya. The perfect holiday destination for people who enjoy hot weather, beautiful sunsets, commercial ship repair, and brain extraction by horrifying seemingly undead bear monsters. Tonight, a lunar eclipse befalls the jungle, allowing just a few minutes of complete and total darkness. The local Bantu villagers are terrified of the eclipse phenomenon, calling it a cursed time when the face of the diurnal moon goes completely dead, like a Burger King employee that can no longer find it within himself to correct customers that ask for McNuggets. They say that a dark spirit inhabits the jungle in times such as these, a mysterious cat-like creature which speaks in riddles through a floating set of teeth and eyes. Any other time, of course, I would seek to learn more about these ethereal cat ghosts. However, according to my new colleague, Wolfgang von Tainthammer, these conditions are also ideal for the true object of our desires. The brain-eating Nandi Bear. A trap has been set to capture one of the beasts. Apparently, prior to my arrival, one of the more creative locals had drafted plans and constructed an intricate Rube Goldberg device involving an overly complex hatch in the ground and some bird that would punch in a repeated coded number sequence with buttons that needed to be pressed to reset some timer. All sorts of...
1: a large-scale communal research compound where scientists and free thinkers from around the globe would pursue research in... The uh, Station 3 was originally constructed as a laboratory where scientists could work to understand the unique electromagnetic fluctuations emanating
0: from this sector... I oh, could see that you were slipping, you were losing your grip! Sir! Balls! Okay, I'm turning it off! There was an incident like Bjork, like Bjork or a 1 Donkey Show. Every
1: 108 minutes, a button
0: must be pushed. Sir. Oh, for God's sakes. Either you or your partner must input the code. James Livingston. He's a magic Help!
1: Don't let him near each other! Turn it off!
0: I couldn't see the point of any of it. And honestly, I don't think those sons of bitches really thought things through either. Anyways, in the end we decided the simpler the better and settled on an old industry favourite. The tar baby. What? It apparently works on brares. Why not bears? We hit up the local tar mart to purchase our supplies.
2: Listen, big boy. And will that be
0: all for you, gentlemen, today? Now you know what. Let me get some of this invisible shit in front of me too.
2: Asshole.
0: If the captured Nandi was female, it would be lured in by the generous amounts of Axe body spray that we meticulously applied to the tar baby in the time-honored manner of double pits to chesty. If the bear was male, it would be drawn the same way all males are drawn to pretty much anything. A pair of voluptuous, incredibly weird-looking National Geographic boobs. That's my girlfriend, Erica. And believe you me, her jugs are like nothing you've ever seen. Unless you've seen a colostomy bag. Where was I? Ah, yes... I had just spent the entire night fashioning a pair of the weirdest, most titillating tits imaginable out of long circus clown balloons and tar. They hung low, they hung weird, and they were more molestable than a Jonas at Neverland Ranch. No Nandi would be able to resist. They would forthwith become stuck in the sensual substance, and simple as that, we'd have our first documented subject to observe. We've situated ourselves in some shrubbery, several yards upwind of the Tar Baby, while we've been waiting for quite some time for the onset of the Eclipse.
1: This, my dear Chodsworth, is where the men are separated from the boys.
0: What? JC Penney's? Shh! Do you hear that? Hear what? Me! Saying shh! Oh, for God Emperor's sake.
1: No, no! That's the sound a seething flock of Nandi make when they descend upon the unfortunate skull coated brain meat of their victims.
0: Right, and crayons always taste the same as their color. Taint hammer, Nandi don't travel in flocks. Everyone knows that. The proper group collective noun for multiple bears is. Wait, a herd? Oh, I'll be damned. A covey? No. A school, perhaps. A school of bear? A pack? Oh, you must be talking oh, about... Oh, shut up, Jeff. Adults are speaking now. If we're trying to figure out what a group of cameras are called, we'll let you know. You know, I'm going to say it's a bevy. A quantity of bear converged to form a bevy. Well, obviously your iPhone is going to crash if you try to Google it out here, Erica. Everyone knows Apple released the G4s far too prematurely just to capitalize on trend-obsessed hipsters, and frankly, I'm surprised at your lack of better consumer judgment.
1: Here, let's just use mine Blackberry then. Hello, Barry? Sir Listen, quick question for you, and I'll let you get back to work. What do you suppose a group of bears is called? A colony, really. Are you sure? No, we're kind of just guessing too. Okie doke, so how's everything at the
0: office? Quiet, all of you. The darkness it comes. My gods. A litter of bears. A litter. Okay, okay, enough. No, I mean, think about it. A group of them? What if there's a group of them? We've only got one tar baby. That's only enough for one single Nondi. For God's sake, man! what if they come at us in a a clutch or a a gaggle or whatever? What'll we do? The rest we'd have to fight off or something. Elrond Hubbard, save us. Do you have any idea how to defeat a Nondi bear in combat? I could call Barry tama we just picked a whole bouquet of oopsie daisies.
1: For once, Chordsworth, you're right. If it comes down to it, we'll need to engage the beasts in fisticuffs. There's no magical silver bullet that puts them down. But these bears are not invincible. Local Bantu folklore suggests that there will be some sort of boss nandy which moves in predictable patterns and will have one vulnerable spot that is usually glowing red. Each successful strike at that spot should get it to drop power-ups.
0: And if worst comes to worst, we could both probably outrun Jeff. What? You know how the old saying goes. Hey! Christ, I can't see a thing. Stay close. Remember, live together, die apart. A deafening silence then befalls us. A shiver runs down my spine, reminding my balls to defensively shrink up and seek shelter somewhere up inside my gooch. Would that I had a warm safe gooch to shrink up into now. And then, we heard it. Faint, but clearly discernible. A ghastly, unspeakable sound of set and death. Our greatest fear, a reality. A whole freaking uh, platoon of Nondi bears. Dear God, they're everywhere. Like a swarm of monstrous smoke! Steady, men! Let's give these bears a drubbing they shan't soon forget! Where are they? I can't see a damn thing! By Jove! I see something! Something in the dark! Floating eyes! Floating teeth! It's the ethereal cat spirit that speaks only in riddles! Uh,
1: what? Look! The moon! It's returning! I can see! The Tar Baby! That's no Tar Baby. It's... It's... Elbow deep in boob balloons.
0: Our producer? Hank? Hank with mad cow disease? Back from the dead? Guess we'll have to wait till next week to truly find out. Special thanks to Abby Hilton and Mike Boris for lending their voices, and to Adam Carvin for contributions with the writing on that one. And now, it's 100-word story time. This week's Drabble comes to us from Steve Lidster out in Portland, Oregon, a metropolis of the strange, and it's called The Storyteller. Check out Steve's podcast for uber short fiction Clowns, Bunnies, and Other Scary Things at clownsandbunnies.podbean.com I'm strapped to the chair as the storyteller enters the tent. His eyes are glazed and insane. He begins to tell me his tale of madness. Once I follow his twisted, crazy logic, then I shall be insane, too. I struggle to ignore his litany. It is no use. No matter what I do, I can hear him. I start to see what he is getting at. I begin to understand. I scream. The guards enter the room, freeing me and escorting the storyteller away. I have one thing left to cling to. I have a story to tell. Nice. Now that's a Lovecraft-inspired Drabble. What's worse than having something bad happen to you? Having to wait around for it to happen. It's called Dread, and like tar babies to cryptozoology, it was a standard go-to for Lovecraft, who saw opportunities for arcane ancient evil in almost anything. And that brings us to our feature story this week, Dread Unlocks by Christine Catherine Rush. Christine's a USA Today best-selling author who's also won a few Hugos in her career, as well as a World Fantasy Award, which is a bust of H.P. Lovecraft, by the way. Her next novel is Anniversary Day, which will be exclusive on Audible in September, and will be published in trade and ebook in December. She also writes funny fantasy novels in her romance disguise as Christine Grayson. The next book in that series, Utterly Charming, will appear in October. For more information on her and her career, check out christinecatherinerush.com. The story is read to you by the lovely Veronica Giger, a voice artist, writer, and podcast producer with a preference for red dresses, mind control, and non-designer coffee. She's the voice artist and producer of the Parsec finalist, The Secret World Chronicle, as well as a contributing writer and world builder for the comic publisher Incubator Press. When she's not taunting fellow podcasters with black suspenders and a matching fedora, Veronica can be found at voicesbyveronica.com or on Twitter at V for Voice. So without further ado, we bring you Dread Unlocks by Christine Catherine Rush.
2: Okay, no one expects Eldritch Horror in LA. Not that I know what Eldritch Horror really is. My old boyfriend, about 15 boyfriends back, called anything that inspired Dread, Eldritch Horror. I guess that would describe my entire job, really. I investigate DREAD, which is why my company is called DREADLOCKS. Really, it should be called DREAD UNLOCKS, but I tried that for a year and no one understood it. Now I put up with the occasional phone call about hairstyles, just so I can get customers. And I get those by referral and occasionally through my website, but that's only a recent development, and mostly it's because of that news story that KTLA ran over and over and over again until I thought I would go mad. I got into this business accidentally. I mean, who gets into dispelling dread on purpose? And I stayed because I'm good at it. Plus... There's a lot of money in it, more than you could ever imagine. Here's why. By the time folks call me, they've already gone through every other option. They've contacted the police, an attorney, a priest or other religious figure, but usually a priest, a psychic, a ghost hunter, and then, finally, me. I have no idea if the other folks are effective. All I know is that folks who need me see me as the bizarro hire of last resort. And I hate getting hired, so I always quote a price that makes people's hair stand on end. If they can't afford me, they either get mad and hang up, to which I say good riddance, or they start to cry, at which point I make them come to the office. If their clothes are crap and they show up in a rattletrap trap car, then I don't charge much at all, at least initially. I jack up my prices if I discover that they're just cheapskates who never buy anything new. I usually find that out PDQ because most creeping dread appears at the home, at least the creeping dread that people complain about. Very rarely does it show up at work, except this last case. I got a call from one of KTLA's crosstown rivals. I'm not telling you which one. Most folks outside of LA don't realize that LA has more television stations than any other place on the planet because it's hello, Los Angeles, and everyone wants to be on camera in one way or another. Everyone except me. Anyway, the call comes in, and my secretary, the hunky Frank... And I do not call him that in person, really. Honestly, how could I? I may have an unconventional profession, but he's an employee, for God's sake. And California, hell, the federal government, has stringent laws against that kind of thing. So, the hunky Frank takes it, finds out who it's from, and hangs up. My orders. Like I said, I don't want to be on TV. I hated the publicity from the last case. Ever since, a thousand, or maybe just three, stupid reality shows have been calling, wanting me to be the next Ghost Hunters or something. So, I do not talk to anyone in the media. Ever. After the 15th call, the hunky Frank begins to suspect that this is a job, not a troll wanting a development deal, and he starts begging me to take it, when I'm in the office, which is rarely I hate the office. It's a little dive in a strip mall that probably didn't even look nice when it was built about 50 years ago. The sun has bleached the exterior whitish-gray, and... The interior isn't much better. 1960s linoleum, 1970s fake wood paneling, and 1980s discarded office furniture. The hunky Frank sits in the showroom window, partly because I believe the office needs some kind of decoration, and partly because there's no room for his desk anywhere else. Because this office started out as an insurance agency and then became a financial services place before it tumbled in status and fell to marginal businesses like dreadlocks, it also has a little office in the back. The little office is truly little, not much bigger than the bathroom that we share with the other tenants in the strip mall. The little office is designed to make anyone who works in it feel like they won one of those consolation prizes at the fair. Yeah, you're a manager, but look, you're in charge of 300 square feet of strip mall hell. If it wasn't for the hunky Frank and the fact that I don't want the hassle of working out of my home, I wouldn't have an office at all. But folks who find themselves struggling with creeping dread sometimes bring the dread along with them. And while I can handle dread at the office, I can dispel it even when it's a pain. I really don't want to deal with dread at home. So I use the landline in my terrible small office to take the call from the TV people. I don't want these folks to have my cell number. They want a meeting. Hollywood people always want meetings, and meetings usually lead to promises, and promises lead to hopes, and hopes in Hollywood get dashed. The last thing I want is a meeting, so I tell them they can either pony up my retainer and take me to the site of the problem, or they can go the hell away. I get an address and a credit card number right away. I give the credit card to the hunky Frank who runs it, blinking at the amount I tell him to charge, and then... I scurry off to the address, which turns out to be a vacant lot in Compton, which, despite my new financial good fortune, pisses me off. I give the TV people five minutes, which is five minutes longer than I want to give them, but I feel that I owe them, given how much they've put down as a retainer. I'm pretty sure, though, as I stand there beside my Jeep Grand Cherokee with all of my equipment, that I'm on some modern version of Candid Camera until the panel van with the satellite dishes on the roof and the TV station's logo shows up, and out pops one of the most famous guys in local L.A. television. I can't give you his name, so I'll call him Greg. He's the plastic spray-tanned version of the hunky Frank, all shiny-faced with great hair and better bones, and an insincerity in the eyes that makes me, for one, want to punch him in the face. This guy isn't anchor material, although I'm sure he started out that way. This guy has his sights set on a hosting gig on E! Entertainment Television or Extra or Inside Edition. He takes himself way too seriously for someone who cares what a B-list movie star has for breakfast. Miss Tarbell? He actually sounds nervous, but I don't trust that. Yeah, I say letting all the exhaustion I've ever felt into my voice. I knew when I hung out my shingle in L.A. that I would get the occasional Hollywood type, but until now, I'd managed to avoid them. You were recommended to me, and frankly, after what you did to that hotel downtown. That hotel was an anomaly, I say. I had taken one of L.A.'s most famous historic hotels and de-ghostified it. Kinda. I got rid of the ghosts that caused guest unease. It was an anomaly. Not because I can get rid of ghosts. I can get rid of anything that causes dread. But because L.A. doesn't have a lot of historic hotels. At least, not hotels with the original architecture. I, of course, don't tell him that. Why spoil the little ghost hunter story that KTLA has been milking for the past few months? I just... Figured you could solve this one for us, he says, glancing at the van as if he's embarrassed. What one? I asked. Oh, sorry, right, he says. I've been explaining it to your man. Every word out of this creep's mouth irritates me. I don't have a man in the 1930s movie sense of the word. I have an assistant in the 2011 real-life sense of the word but I don't correct Greg. I just want this little meeting to end. It's our satellite van, Greg says in a low voice. I'm the only one who can ride in it. Everyone else gets so upset that they have to bail out a few blocks into the trip. They start out with dread and work their way to horror, then succumb to sheer panic. I look at the van. It looks like any old TV satellite van. There are a million of them, or at least a hundred, on the streets of L.A. I feel horror whenever I see them because I know they're taking advantage of someone's misfortune to get ratings. There's no one inside this van, which is highly unusual for any TV van. The equipment in the back is unmanned, and the van itself is mighty clean. All right, I say. Let's give it a spin. He nods, then crosses round to the driver's side, while I slip into the passenger side. Usually at this point, I'm feeling something. But right now, all I'm feeling is unease. If I hadn't recognized Greg's face, I would think I had just gotten into a van with one of those stalker serial killer guys that populate network television. But Greg can't be one of those guys— someone would see him and recognize him. Still, things don't feel quite right. I'm comfortable on the van's plush leather front seat, and I'm not feeling anything radiating out of the back. Well, he asks as he closes the door. I shake my head. Just drive around this lovely empty lot. Let's see how it goes. And as we drive, you can tell me why you picked such a scenic area for our little meet. Sorry about that, he says. No one comes here, so I figured no one would notice the van. He keeps nattering, but I've stopped listening. As the van eases up to 25 miles per hour, I'm feeling distinctly uncomfortable. The minute it hits 30, I want out of the bloody thing. All right, I say, trying not to let my discomfort show. We can stop. Well, at least let me take you back to your car, he says. It's a Jeep, I say tightly. And no, we can stop now. He keeps driving, and I really want out. I'm willing to do a Hollywood stuntman-style rolling leap from the vehicle if he doesn't hit the damn brakes. I mean it, I say. You stop this thing, or I will. He slams on the brakes. I yank open the door and fly out of the vehicle as if an unseen hand pushes me. I barely keep from tumbling onto the baked dirt and broken glass that is the empty lot. I take a few deep breaths. That was absolutely the worst panic I'd ever felt in a dread location in my entire career. I felt my cheeks heat. I certainly didn't act professional. Okay, I say. I'm going to walk to my Jeep, and I'll meet you there. I need time to think. Really, I need time away from that van, but I don't say so. I shove my hands in my pockets and trudge along the edge of the vacant lot, back to my Jeep. Greg drives there. It's only a few yards away, but those few yards give me more than enough time to think. I have some questions for him before I go any further. I stand at the edge of the lot and wait for him to get out of the van. He smooths his summer suit and grins at me, one of those toothy L.A. grins that just needs a cgi eyed sparkle and a musical ping to be absolutely perfect. How come you can ride in the van? I ask. I don't know, he says. Have you let someone else drive? He frowns at me. Yeah. And do they panic? Yeah. Okay, then. Why not sell the van? Your station is worth megabucks. You can afford to trash a van. He blushes. I actually think the blush is real. It happens in all our vans, he says. That throws me off. Dread is isolated. It only applies to one place or thing. I nod sagely as if I know something, even though I don't. I'm pretending. Have you removed all of the equipment from the vans? The stuff that's not built in? Yeah, he says. And the dread remains? He nods. What have you done to dispel it? Well, you know, he says not looking at me. First we investigated the history of our van fleet. Then we looked at each van, especially this one, since it manifested first. Then we called a psychic, who referred us to a priest, who found us an exorcist, who sent us to a ghost hunter, who sent us to you. Not quite typical, but close enough. I'm amazed he admitted as much as he did. When do you feel it? I ask the dread. He looks down, then he sighs, and then he bites his lower lip. At that moment, I know. He doesn't feel it. He has never felt it. He brought me the van because he's the only one who can drive the van. I don't feel anything, he says, and I believe That's the most truthful thing he's said so far. Okay, I say. We're going to try something. Let me drive you around the vacant lot. He looks at me sideways, then tosses me the van keys. I toss them back to him. In my Jeep, I say. Why, he asks. Humor me, I say. He frowns but pretends nonchalance. He heads to the driver's side, which pisses me off, and I shake the keys at him as if I'm warding him away. He goes to the passenger side with some reluctance. We both get in. My heart is pounding. I drive us a few feet, getting the Jeep up to speed. Then my mouth dries out. My heart starts racing. My palms sweat and slide on the steering wheel. This damn Jeep is too close, too small, and I have to get out. I have to get out now. I stop the Jeep. Walk back to your van, I say, pleased that my voice doesn't betray any emotion. Why, he asks. Humor me, I say. It seems I'm saying that a lot to this guy. He gets out, slamming the door behind him. I shut off the air conditioner, open all the windows, and drive away, heading around the vacant lot. The interior of the van feels bigger, the hot air is soothing, and my heart is beating normally. I let out a small sigh. He is standing beside the van, hands laced together in front of him. He looks nervous again, although the look fades as I stop the jeep. Then he gives me that big fake Hollywood smile. You don't work in the studio much, do you? I ask as I get out of the jeep. I stand near the curb, a good five feet away from him. No, he says. I prefer the great outdoors, the way the light, because technically you're an entertainment reporter, I say. Yeah? He sounds confused. Which is your official job title, I say. Yeah? He sounds even more confused. But the rest of us, we would call you paparazzi, right? His shoulders square. Technically, the term for one paparazzi is paparazzo. If we were in Italy, I say, which we aren't, "'We're in the paparazzi capital of the world, "'the folks who have trashed every single celebrity date since 1990, "'who brought us the spectacle of the O.J. trial "'and caused the death of Princess Di, although not in L.A., "'and have climbed fences, hired choppers, and broken into houses "'just to get a story about a celebrity. "'You're good at what you do, aren't you?' I ask. "'The best,' he says.' which is why this whole thing is upsetting me. I can't bring a crew with me to a location. They come in their own cars. It's getting in the way of my job. Just like he gets in the way of everyone else's job. I peer at his nose to see if it's broken. Was he the guy who got hit with James Kane's golf club? Was Greg the one who almost caused George Clooney to have a motorcycle accident? Or did this guy just do harmless things, like using telephoto lenses to photograph actresses undressing in their own homes? I open the door to my jeep and get out my equipment. My equipment really isn't much at all. Just some dirt from my backyard, a bit of water from my swimming pool, and a few spiderwebs collected from my garage. It helps to have the accoutrements of magic, even when you really don't need them at all. Move away from the van, I say. He does. I open the door farthest from him and crawl inside. With the engine off, the van has heated tremendously in the L.A. sun. If I hadn't quizzed Greg, I would have thought the heat baked off the dread. It does sometimes. But I knew better. This is just a van. A van with a lot of video and sound equipment, but a van just the same. It feels no different from any tricked-out van in any showroom in any part of the country. I let out a small sigh, then get out of the van. It's not your van, I say. But you know that. He's looking at me sideways. That's why you came alone. That's why you want this done. You already know what the problem is. It's you. He swallows, but smart man doesn't say anything. That's why you saw a psychic first, and then an exorcist. Most people go to the cops first, thinking something normal is happening, like a stalker or something. But you already knew. I peer into his eyes. They glitter like his teeth, but they're mostly empty, except for the fear in them. He swallows. People haven't liked you for a long time, I say. Maybe they never liked you, but you can live with that. You have lived with that most of your life, but when they started dreading being near you, that's when you realized you had a problem. You can't even approach celebrities. You can't sit in a show trial without making the judge toss the spectators out of court. You can't do live in studio interviews anymore. He's twisting his hands together. The exorcist couldn't help me, he says in a small voice. Can you? No, I lie. Why not? he asks. You're the thing, I say. The thing that causes dread. You're supposed to be the creeping unseen horror, and instead, you've learned how to function in the light. It's normal to have people flee from you. The wonder is that it has taken this long. I'm not a thing, he says with a bit of anger. No, sadly, I think there's still a bit of a person in there, I say. Just enough of one to know that this isn't normal. The exorcist says there's no demon. That's why he couldn't expel anything. That's right, I say. He's the eldritch horror, but he won't understand the reference, so I leave it unspoken. You don't have a demon, just a growing coldness that you have cultivated. It's eating away at your soul. But it's not something from the outside, it's something from within. He believes me. He's been through this enough that he knows I'm right. I can see it in his empty eyes. For a moment, I worry that he's going to do something to me, hurt me, silence me, make me disappear. Then he looks down, as if he saw the horror on my face. What can I do? he asks. I shrug. Technically, I can dispel all of this. I can erase the coldness. I can take away all the slithery things inside him that are causing all of this dread. It's what I do. I cover an item or a place in dust. I shake some pool water on it, saying that it's holy water. I coat it with spider webs, say a few incantations, but mostly I just touch it. Some of us, we have the ability to calm troubled waters, to make unseen hurts disappear, to get rid of cold spots and soothe lingering terrors. Usually, we work in the healing professions— Medicine, psychiatry, hell, even yoga. But I don't have a math brain, so no advanced degree for me. I hate exercise, so yoga's out of the question. And I don't believe in any religion, so I can't even become a minister of some kind. I started dreadlocks just because it was easier than having friends ask for help all the time. With dreadlocks, I get people to pay for the service without hurting the friendships. I've never had to dispel dread from a person, even though I probably can. My fear is that I dispel the dread that surrounds him, and he goes right back to work, torturing famous people and hounding the unfortunate who have accidentally done something that catches the press's attention. What could you do? I repeat. Well, you could move. Where? He asks somewhere without a celebrity subculture. Then you could, oh, I don't know, become a janitor or something, do a job that you can do by yourself as a kind of penance until you melt that ice inside you. Eventually, you'll become human again. I think, anyway. I'm not sure. I don't tell him that either. But my job, he says, is killing you, I say, which isn't technically true. It's probably just eating him alive. So move on. But where would I go? What would I do? And then I know he's lost. Completely and totally lost. There's no recovering Greg at all because there's no Greg left to recover. Not when he's quoting Gone with the Wind in the middle of a crisis. I resist the urge to say... Frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn, even though it's true. I don't know, I say. Maybe you should start your own reality show. See who can be alone with you in a small room for the longest amount of time, and then pay that person some kind of reward. You're a sick person, he says, clearly offended. Yeah, I suppose so. I want my retainer back. Good luck with that. You paid for my time, not my success. I've already been sued over this. It holds up in court. You're a leech, he says. I stare at him. No, I say. Technically, you are. I wonder briefly if dousing him with salt will make him fall off this little corner of the world. But I'm not going to try. Instead, I get into my Jeep and drive away, leaving Greg and his van alone by that empty lot. I resist the urge to close up my office and shut down my business so Greg can't ever find me again. Then I realize that I'm not important enough for him to pursue. In fact, the only reason he hired me is because I'm a famous dread dispeller. If that KTLA story hadn't run over and over again, he wouldn't have bothered with me at all, even if I was, and I am, the best person at my job. I realize as I drive that I'm fighting a silent, creeping horror that has been engulfing this town for nearly a century. Ever since they cut down the orange groves, since the oil barons polluted the land, and since Charlie Chaplin walked in his little tramp suit across the beautiful sunlight streets of Hollywood, this horror has sucked the souls out of lesser men, those without dreams or goals, with only a hope of leeching off someone better than they were. I suppose there are folks like that all over America, but they thrive here. And no matter how much dust I throw at them or swimming pool water I sprinkle on them or how many spider webs I coat them with, they'll continue wrapping their slimy selves around real people, filling them with an unnamed dread. Naming the dread won't help. It's time to take my own advice and move on. Maybe get a real job in a little town where people actually like each other. Sure, I'll have to dispel some dread or give some comfort or, God forbid, learn yoga. But I can cope with that. Better than I can cope with the Gregs of the world. As I pull into the driveway of my own personal strip mall, I wonder if the hunky Frank will move with me. Even small towns need a bit of decoration in their showroom window. I have to figure out a way to ask without violating any employment laws, but I'm smart. I managed to make a small fortune off a leech. I'm sure I can figure out a way to shut down my LA operation without losing the hunky Frank. Or at least, I hope I can.
0: our story abominable unspeakable evil eons old and you thought the paparazzi were just assholes so hey if you dug this week's story or if you like what we're doing with things like lovecraft month here on drabblecast commissioning authors for their work etc consider making a donation to help us out your money goes to helping us pay authors for the worlds they create voice actors for the stories they tell and musicians for the music they license a whole slew of good stuff that goes into making the show You can go to Drabblecast.org where you'll see a couple different options, a donate once, an automatic five bucks a month subscription, and if you've got the means and really want to help us out, an automatic ten bucks a month subscription. All you need is a credit card or debit card or a PayPal account, and it's super easy. We really appreciate it. Just like we appreciate this week's kick-ass donor of the week, Nathan Weisenbaum. Nathan's a programmer at Google Seattle by day and an unrepentant nerd by night. His hobbies include playing games with his friends, playing games on his own, and coding at home if he hasn't coded enough at work. Wow, Google's lucky to have you, buddy. And we are too, Nathan. Thanks for listening and supporting the show. Alrighty, and before we go this week, our 100-character TwitFic winner, first-time Twabbler, C. Ryan, with this micro-story here. As the day mutters to itself beneath its watchful eye, The night whispers, issuing secret missives to those who listen. Nice. Also very Lovecraftian. Great job. You folks at home, try your hand at twabbling. Write a story that's only 100 characters, not counting spaces, and post it in the TwitFix section of our discussion forums, linked off drabblecast.org. See what people think. You might be on next week's show. And if you're not following us already on Twitter, we're at TheDrabbleCast. Get the winners early each week and more. And while you're adding people to Twitter, I heard that our own in-house cryptozoologist Connor Chodesworth has his own Twitter account now, musing, ranting, and elucidating in his own special way. Follow him at Chodesworth. Alrighty folks, that's our show. Remember, it's brought to you with a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License, which means don't change or sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. Write us a review on iTunes or Podcast Alley, wherever's cool. Spread the weird. Special thanks to Drabblecast art director Bo Kyer for drawing up the cover art for this week's show. Bo's the man, the man with the gland. Check out his stuff at bokyer.com. We'll see you next week, weirdos. Until then, I'm Norm Sherman, reminding you, live together, die apart.